Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. Wake Island is part of a three-island coral atoll in the Pacific Ocean, located about 2,300 miles west of Hawaii. The entire atoll is roughly 11 times the size of the National Mall in Washington, D.C. With an area of less than three square miles, Wake is the largest of the islands and is shaped like a wishbone. Despite its small size and relative isolation, the island was chosen as the site of the strangest and most talked-about meeting of the Korean War. On October 15, 1950, President Harry S. Truman and General Douglas MacArthur met on Wake Island. Five and a half years into Truman's presidency, it was the first time they ever met. There are quite a few stories that circulate about this meeting at Wake Island. Given the extreme differences that ultimately emerged between President Truman and General MacArthur, it is not surprising that many look to this meeting for hints of the drama to come. This month's podcast will address these stories, particularly why the meeting took place and what actually happened there. Due to the success of the landings at Incheon, in early October, the momentum of the Korean War was in favor of the United Nations forces. On October 7th, the United Nations issued an ambitious new mandate for Korea. This mandate called for the reunification of a democratic Korea rather than just simply a restoration of the 38th parallel between North and South Korea. With this new objective, and with concerns about China's potential entry into the conflict, President Truman decided that it was time for a face-to-face meeting with MacArthur. On October 9th, he instructed George Marshall to arrange a meeting. MacArthur was informed of the President's request for a meeting on October 10th. Marshall told him that Truman preferred to meet at Oahu around October 14th or 16th, but would be willing to meet somewhere else if MacArthur couldn't be absent from his headquarters for very long. If MacArthur deemed the trip to Hawaii too disruptive in terms of his wartime responsibilities, he was instructed to pick an alternate meeting site. MacArthur promptly replied that he would meet the President on Wake Island on the morning of October 14th. Marshall responded that the meeting would actually take place on October the 15th because of the international dateline. With the date and location agreed upon, the stage was set. President Truman announced that he would be meeting with MacArthur in the Pacific to talk about the final phase of the Korean War, as well as other matters that fell within MacArthur's responsibility. Personally, Truman was convinced that he was at his best when he could actually sit down with people face to face. By meeting with MacArthur, he hoped to establish a rapport with him as he had done before with General Dwight D. Eisenhower and General Omar Bradley. Given that the relationship between a president and his generals is very important and can set the tone of a war or a policy, Truman's request for a meeting was understandable. A new stage of the war was beginning, and there were also concerns about Chinese and Soviet intervention. The president, therefore, had very good reasons for meeting with MacArthur. From the very beginning, however, Truman was pressured to defend his reasons for calling the meeting. 
From the moment the meeting was announced, the press was quick to characterize it as a political stunt typical of a midterm election year. While Truman did have a genuine interest in getting to know MacArthur better, it was also clear that he had other political reasons for making the trip. With the elections just weeks away, and with polls looking relatively unfavorable, Truman definitely wanted to be more closely associated with the victory at Inchon and the other successes of the war. The Truman administration had taken a lot of criticism for the war early on, and now wanted to capitalize on the war's success in a way that would benefit the president's party in the midterm elections. William Manchester, one of MacArthur's biographers, points out that communication technology in 1950 was far superior to what it had been in World War II, meaning that a face-to-face -face meeting was probably unnecessary. For many observers at the time, it seemed that the only reason for a face-to-face -face meeting at this moment in the war was to dramatize the summit for the press and capture headlines across the United States. Truman had non-political reasons to meet with MacArthur, but at the same time he was also a shrewd politician. Essentially, the meeting seemed advantageous on multiple levels to both the president and his advisors. Naturally, MacArthur's staff was quick to view the meeting as an attempt by the president to bask in the glow of MacArthur's triumph. MacArthur publicly dismissed these concerns. In private, however, he agreed, and made it clear that he thought the meeting was a political junket designed to benefit the president politically. On hearing that the presidential party would include a chartered plane full of reporters, MacArthur reportedly asked if he could bring his own reporters from Japan. This request was denied, much to MacArthur's surprise. In his autobiography, MacArthur leaves it at that and does not comment on the matter any further. He does this, however, in a way that encourages the reader to infer some sort of real or imagined intrigue on the part of Washington. On October 11th, Truman left Washington, D.C. and began to make his way to Wake Island. MacArthur left Japan for Wake Island three days later. On the flight, MacArthur reportedly expressed his frustration at being called away from his duties for a photo op with the president. This attitude was not new, however. During World War II, MacArthur had reacted in a similar manner when summoned to Pearl Harbor in July of 1944 for a conference with President Roosevelt. Although hardly apolitical as he often claimed to be, nothing irritated MacArthur more than being used for what he thought was someone else's political gain. There is no doubt that prior to the meeting, MacArthur harbored suspicions and doubts about the president. Similarly, Truman already had a well-developed attitude towards the general. Days before the meeting, Truman wrote sarcastically to a relative that he was going to meet with God's right-hand man. Both men came to the meeting with rather negative preconceptions about the other. Nevertheless, contrary to popular accounts, the meeting on Wake Island was relatively friendly. One of the most commonly repeated stories about the Wake Island meeting is that the planes carrying Truman and MacArthur arrived at the same time and circled the airfield, each refusing to be the first to land because neither wanted to be in the subordinate position of watching the other descend from his plane. Growing more and more irritated by the moment, Truman reportedly ordered MacArthur to land. MacArthur's plane landed, but then the general kept Truman waiting for 45 minutes. According to this story, 
when MacArthur finally appeared to greet Truman, the President reprimanded MacArthur for his insubordination. This story emerged during the 1970s as a result of a bestseller, a play, and a television special, all of which depicted the Wake Island meeting as an openly hostile battle of wills between both men. In reality, several requests from MacArthur to the Secretary of State about the arrival time of the President's plane are testament to MacArthur's concern that his own party arrive at Wake Island in time to properly receive the President. In fact, MacArthur and his entourage arrived at Wake Island shortly after 6 p.m. on September 14th, the evening before the meeting. The general stayed in a Quonset hut that belonged to the maintenance manager of the Civilian Aeronautics Administration. He had enough time to rest, bathe, shave, and breakfast before heading out to the airfield to wait for the President at 6 a.m. on the morning of September the 15th. When Truman's plane landed 30 minutes later, MacArthur was on hand to greet the President as he descended from the plane. Another often repeated story about the Wake Island meeting revolves around MacArthur not saluting the President in greeting. This is true. MacArthur did not salute Truman. Instead, both men engaged in a warm handshake. Video footage of the meeting shows MacArthur coming towards the President with his hand outstretched and the President extending his hand when he sees MacArthur striding towards him. While some viewed this as a serious breach of protocol and a sign that MacArthur did not recognize Truman as his commander-in-chief, Truman did not visibly react to it. Of his first impression of MacArthur, he would write in his notes for the day, We arrived at dawn. General MacArthur was at the airport with his shirt unbuttoned, wearing a greasy ham and egg cap that had evidently been in use for 20 years. If anything about the greeting really bothered the former haberdasher, it was that MacArthur was dressed a little too casually. Despite this later admission and the lack of a salute, as both men greeted each other, the President was quoted as saying, I'm glad you are here. I have been a long time in meeting you, General. MacArthur responded by saying, I hope it won't be so long next time, Mr. President. Both men paused for photographers and then walked arm in arm to a Chevrolet sedan, the only car on the island, and were then driven to the Quonset hut where MacArthur had stayed the previous night. For 40 minutes, both men talked privately. It will probably never really be known exactly what they discussed, but according to accounts, the men talked about China, about Japan being ready for a peace treaty, and about controversial remarks MacArthur had made to the veterans of foreign wars. According to Truman's account, MacArthur apologized if a statement that he had made to the veterans of foreign wars had caused the President any embarrassment. In response, Truman assured MacArthur that he considered the incident closed. Truman also recalled that MacArthur reassured him that he had no intention of getting involved in politics. MacArthur himself refused to later comment on the private meeting, but Major General Courtney Whitney, a member of MacArthur's staff, later wrote that MacArthur thought of the meeting as a relatively unimportant conversation and mentioned that the bulk of the meeting was spent talking about the fiscal and economic problems of the Philippines. Once finished with their private discussion, MacArthur, Truman, and their respective parties sat down in the new pink-colored, one-story Civil Aeronautics Administration Communication Building for the official meeting sometime that morning between 7.30 and 
When MacArthur's aide, Colonel Lawrence Bunker, began to take notes, Truman's press secretary, Charles Ross, instructed him that there were to be no notes. Clearly there was some sort of misunderstanding, because members of Truman's party took notes. The most controversial note-taker was Vernice Anderson, the personal secretary of Ambassador Philip Jessup. Miss Anderson sat in a tiny anteroom outside of the meeting room. The door was ajar, and according to Miss Anderson, she naturally started taking notes. Her notes would later be used to great effect against MacArthur. In yet another twist in the note-taking controversy, even though Colonel Bunker was reportedly forbidden from taking notes, the MacArthur Memorial Archives has a complete account of the meeting in Colonel Bunker's papers, indicating that Bunker was allowed to take notes, or that he had an incredible memory of the meeting, or that he was able to reconstruct his own version of the meeting based on the notes of the other note-takers. As the meeting began, Truman took off his coat, and MacArthur asked if the president would mind if he smoked his corncob pipe. Truman said no, and joked that he probably had more smoke blown in his face than any other man alive. The atmosphere was relatively light, and there were jokes that produced much laughter. The discussion mainly focused on post-war Korea, and on the threat of communist China, and on the topic of an independent Japan. All were convinced that the war was winding down, and that the sooner elections were held in Korea, the better. MacArthur also repeatedly assured the president that China would not get involved in the war. If they did, MacArthur predicted a massacre. He assured the president that the Air Force would be able to destroy the invading forces and their supply lines. In his autobiography, MacArthur writes that he was blindsided by the meeting because he had no idea what he would be discussing with the president. Within a day of organizing the meeting, however, MacArthur received numerous messages from the State Department and from the Pentagon, advising him that the meeting would deal with post-war Korea and with other issues pertaining to MacArthur's responsibilities. These messages also included instructions as to how the information about the meeting should be handled in terms of both the press and the United Nations. Certainly these instructions were vague, but MacArthur was not totally unaware of what would be discussed. Although later events would prove some of his assumptions about Communist China's involvement in the war wrong, at the time of the meeting, MacArthur was able to answer all of the President's questions and concerns in a satisfactory manner. All in all, the 90-minute meeting resulted in 485 lines of transcription. Out of those, MacArthur dominated the discussion with 243 lines. Truman came in second with 54 lines. There were no arguments during the meeting, and all appeared to be on the same page. What is striking about the meeting is how bland it was. No issues were probed in depth, and no groundbreaking policy changes were discussed. For such a dramatic summit, the meeting was relatively anticlimactic and redundant. Nevertheless, as the meeting ended, President Truman commented, that no one who was not here would believe we have covered so much ground as we have been actually able to cover. As plans were made for a break, some informal talks, and a luncheon, MacArthur asked the President if he could leave early before the luncheon, as he was anxious to get back to Tokyo. Truman consented, but asked MacArthur to stay a bit longer to confer with other staffers. While MacArthur participated in these informal talks, 
the president rested in another Quonset hut. Around 10.45, MacArthur went to the president's hut and together both men approved a statement drafted by Truman's staff that described the conference as a success. From the hut, both men were driven to the airfield together. On the trip over, both discussed the 1952 presidential election, and once again, MacArthur claimed to have no presidential ambitions. At the airfield, Truman gave MacArthur a box of candy for his family, and then awarded MacArthur his fifth and final Distinguished Service Medal. Both men appeared pleasant and relaxed to the press. As Truman boarded his plane around 11.30, MacArthur's last words to him were, Goodbye, sir, and happy landings. It's been a real honor to talk to you. The entire summit, which had lasted less than six hours, was over. Shortly after the President's plane took off, MacArthur's own plane departed. For the next weeks, the relationship between the two men seemed much improved. They exchanged pleasantries and appeared very upbeat about the meeting. Overall, however, nothing had changed. On November 17th, Truman again wrote another private letter in which he referred to MacArthur as the right-hand man of God. Although MacArthur had apologized that his comments to the veterans of foreign wars had caused Truman embarrassment, he continued to tell the press that his views were still the same. In the end, the meeting at Wake did nothing to alter their feelings towards each other. The meeting had been a meeting between two men who were very wary of each other. Had the meeting actually been constructive, it would have provided an excellent forum for discussing U.S. Cold War strategy in Asia. Had the relationship between Truman and MacArthur really been the point of the conference, then a better relationship might have emerged. Ironically, the rambling meeting produced a strange euphoria in many of the attendees and a false sense that everything was okay. Weeks after the meeting, however, the Chinese did intervene in the war, sending hundreds of thousands of troops into North Korea. Ms. Anderson's notes from the Wake Island meeting would be used to highlight MacArthur's insistence that China would never get involved in the war. They would, however, ignore the fact that when MacArthur had talked about stopping a Chinese invasion, he assumed that he would have the authority to bomb the Chinese forces and bases. In the meeting, in which nothing was discussed very seriously or in depth, no one ever told him that he would not have the authority to do this. This would completely alter the course of the war. In less than two months, the once-taken-for-granted victory lap of the Korean War would explode into what MacArthur would call an entirely new war. Ultimately, the Wake Island meeting had a lot of potential, but as D. Clayton James argued, it can be added to a long list of heralded summit meetings at which opportunities to change a tragic course in history were missed. Future podcasts will explore the different stages of the Korean War in depth. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.